Picture this. You're 35 years old. You manage $13 billion. Your career is taking off like a rocket. And you decide to close up shop, move to Israel, and be closer to God. Sounds like a dream? Well, that's exactly what someone did. Our next guest is Morris Smith. Currently resides in the five towns here in Long Island. And his story is highly, highly unusual. But there's a lot we can learn from it. And I hope you do. We touched on some key points that I think anyone in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s can take something from it. And yeah, if you're 102 years old, you can learn something from this as well. I don't want to give too much away. Without further ado, the Tzaddik, Morris Smith. Being a Jew, awesome. Managing personal finances, not so awesome. Welcome to Kosher Money. Welcome back to Kosher Money. Privileged to have today with us Morris Smith from Lawrence, New York. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Good morning. So when I Google Morris Smith, a few people actually reached out suggesting we have you on. I said, okay, I've heard the name. I've seen emails from you. Let me find out who Morris Smith is. So an article pops up. It says, an interview with Morris Smith. I said, oh, someone beat us to the punch. And it says how one man walked away from power and prestige to truly have it all. So let's go back to the beginning. Who is Morris Smith? How do you get your start? Why, why are we having you on a podcast about money? Okay, so my start really, uh, I'll go back to the roots, as they would say. I was born in 1957. Uh, parents are survivors, came over from Europe. My mother went through the Holocaust, and she's still alive, lives here at the Nautilus, age 94 and a half by hour. And uh, my father, um, was during the war, was in Siberia, and he passed away more than 20 years ago. Uh, I went to Yeshiva Flatbush Elementary High School in Brooklyn, and always had an interest in numbers. I was good in math, quote unquote, and uh, just, you know, I used to look at stock tables, things like that growing up. Um, ended up going to, after going to Israel for a year, ended up going to Queens College and got a degree both in accounting and economics and worked in public accounting for a couple of years, enough to get my CPA in those days that qualified as far as experience. And after that, decided to go to business school uh, in uh, University of Pennsylvania Wharton School of Business, and I graduated in 1982 with a degree in finance. And at that time, I was interviewing really for different fields, for investment banking, finance, corporate finance, uh, investment management, uh, consulting. And it was actually a terrible job market. I mean, it was like two recessions, almost back-to-back -back in the United States in 1980 and then 81, 82. And unemployment rate was, I think, over 10%, if I recall. Whenever someone talks recession, we have the uh, sirens and yeah, the background. going on, right. Yeah. Those, I thought, the, the depression sirens yeah, in the yeah. background. So, But it was a tough job market, but I was very fortunate. I got a job offer at Fidelity mm. in Boston. That's how I ended up moving up to Boston and getting involved in the investment management business. I mean, I had traded a little bit of my own personal account during college. I had an interest in the markets, but it wasn't like predestined. I was one of, these, one of these kids who came out of the womb and, you know, I started thinking about stocks. It just ended up that way. And it was incredibly, I was just, it worked out fantastic that I got a job at Fidelity because Fidelity was an extremely hot firm in the 1980s. And I was really fortunate to start that firm and really ride the wave of what was an incredible decade. How'd you get in? What was the... Uh... So it was an interview process on campus and, um, 
had three sets of interviews. The first was with, I remember, Barry Greenfield at the, at the university. And then I went up to Boston on two different trips. And uh, I remember the second trip up, I interviewed with, my last person who I interviewed with was Peter Lynch, who mm. uh, took over his position at Magellan. But that was one of the most intimidating interviews I ever had in my life. Because it wasn't that it was particularly hard, but he must have asked me about 20 questions in 30 minutes. What do you know about this industry, that industry, which was difficult enough. I was flustered in the interview, but then as he's asking these questions, he's on his Quotron machine, checking quotes, analysts are coming in, he's asking them questions, he's buying and selling stocks, and he keeps on asking me questions. And I just, I walked out of that interview, I said, I definitely blew it. Came home, flew back to Philadelphia, my wife gets home from work, she sees me, I'm in bed at like 4.30 in the afternoon, I say, she said, what happened? He goes, I blew it. And I really had loved the culture of Fidel. Uh-huh. And uh, like five days later, it was, I think it was George Washington's birthday weekend. Five days later, they called me and gave me the offer. So it was fantastic. How old were you at the time? So I was 24, 24 at that time. 24. Yeah. And you remember what the offer was? Yeah, they offered me $34,000 salary plus bonus. I couldn't believe the amount of money. It was like, what year was so this? Excited. This is in 19, uh, 1982. Okay. And uh, I'd been working in public accounting, as I mentioned before. I worked at what was Ernst & Winnie, now Ernst & Young. I think I was making 15, 16 grand at that point in public accounting. And like the offer, like this was like $34,000. We couldn't believe it. Uh-huh. And they were going to pay for our moving expenses to go from Philly to Boston. That was like a big deal also. And um, it was just really exciting. But I was really more excited about the firm. It was a great place to, um, you could tell from the culture of the company, I would fit in. And, you know, being an Orthodox Jew myself, it was something of concern as I was interviewing. You want to make sure you're in a, uh, an environment that would be, you would be comfortable working in. And this environment, you could tell, was completely based upon performance meritocracy. And I was really excited about it. So you got the job. It's in the early 80s. What was your career trajectory? What happened from there? So great question. It was really accelerated, which is probably some of the reason why I left after 10 years. I I basically went through an entire career in a very compressed time period. And part of the reason, because Fidelity grew at an incredible pace uh, over that decade, nothing to do with me, Uh, had to do with a bull market and the success of our funds. Um, and I started in 82. So I started as an analyst and I worked the first year on housing, lodging, gaming, those industries. And already after one year doing that, I was put on as, as an assistant on one of the funds, the Fidelity Fund, which was run coincidentally by the Barry Greenfield who interviewed me on campus. I did that for a year and already in May of 84, less than two years after I started there, they put me in charge of a brand new product called the Fidelity Leisure and Entertainment Fund called the Select fund, mm-hmm. which was way ahead of its time, because today we have all the different ETFs in different sectors. Fidelity already in the 80s had sector funds, and they did reasonably well as far as asset gathering, but nothing like what happened subsequent to that. But it was great for, as an analyst, because I was also re- responsible for covering all the industries re- related to leisure and entertainment. So I was an analyst, but I also had a pool of money to manage. So it was really terrific as far as development goes. And I did that for two years from 84 to 86. The fund thankfully did very well in that period because it was a good period for those stocks. And then in 1986, we had something called the Fidelity Over-the-Counter Fund, which had been started in 84. 
from zero and it grew to a billion dollars in two years. And the fund manager, Paul Stuka, left at that time. Mm -hmm. So they had a hole and they asked me to start running basically a billion dollars at the age of, you know, four years after I had started. I was very young and suddenly managed I had a lot how of much? 27 or whatever. Well, you I think were 27 and managing how much? A billion dollars. Billion dollars. Yeah. Were, were, were you going to show 29. 29. 29. Okay. Sorry. We'll take it. 27 leisure, 29 OTC. 29 years old, managing a billion dollars. Right. Were, were you pinching yourself at some times coming home from work? or um, Not really. I was so focused on the challenge of just trying to do a good job. What was really more of a concern when I took over the over-the-counter fund is I was being exposed to a completely different group of companies and stock I had never been exposed mm-hmm. to. The makeup of the over-the-counter market in those days, in the mid-80s, was primarily, again, like today, technology, healthcare was important, but banks, financial stocks, bank stocks, et cetera, was a huge part of it. And those are industries I never covered before. Mm-hmm. So I had to do an incredibly quick immersion into learning a completely new se- new sectors. And it was a general fund. The first time I was man- managing a broad fund. I made six trips to the West Coast in about 12 months to learn all about technology, mm-hmm. which was a huge positive. I had no prior baggage. I knew nothing about technology. And we were going through the transition in that period to distributed processing. You know, the whole revolution that was really started by Intel and Microsoft as far as distributed processing, which has led to everything we have today with the internet, et cetera, began in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And I was not married to what was the prior world of having dedicated machines just for, you know, IBM, DEC, et cetera, all these companies that probably most people have never heard of, mm-hmm. but it was not open systems. And the whole world was open, turned into an open system world. And I happen to have bought and kind of invested a lot of those in those newer areas. And the stocks in the fund did very well over the period that I managed it. So at this point, your salary is growing yeah. as, you, as you work up. I'm sure there are quite a few benefits. Did your lifestyle change at all with the success that you were seeing? So I always worked pretty intensely, that which would be defined when I was running the over-the-counter fund, I'd say 50 to 60 hours a week. Mm. Um, and what that really was, interestingly, in those days, there were not conference calls like at the end of the day. Today, whenever companies report earnings, they have a conference call in the evening, et cetera. Those days, that didn't happen. You called companies, you know, and you they'll report earnings and you would t- talk to them one-on-one. So I didn't have to stick around the office, which was great. As far as work life goes, I was able to leave the office every day by 5.30, basically. And I took the uh, train home. Uh, I lived in Sharon, Massachusetts. I'd be home by 6.15. And I would really help my wife, Devara, with our kids putting them to sleep. And that would be, let's say, a two-hour routine to about 8.15, 8.30. And then I'd work at night for a couple hours, usually doing reading and preparing, et cetera. And it was a pretty – and then Sundays, I would work for a few hours also. So, But as, as I got to know the over-the-counter universe better over the four years that I managed that fund, it really became a pretty good routine mm-hmm. as far as the work-life balance within that time frame of knowing it's going to be hard work, but um, able to handle and also also able to handle younger children at home. People are always scared to make a lot of money very quickly. And I'm assuming at some point you were looking at quite a bit of money more more than average. Was there ever uh, an itch inside of you to spend it lavishly, you know, vacations, second, third, fourth homes, cars, or was your upbringing and... uh, mental fortitude strong enough to withstand that test it definitely relates to upbringing and that i think people who know me would say unanimously that has never been an issue in my life as far as sort of trying to 
you know, get to the next level of expenditures. I came up in a house, basically middle class, um, those type of core values um, that, you know, you save, you don't spend, etc. And my, you know, my father, I think, never made more than $55,000 a year right before he retired. So we never had a lot of excess cash. And that is, I think, part of my DNA. It's part of, you know, probably again, relating back to the Holocaust to some extent. Um, in addition to that, I think from a perspective of Jewish ethics and values, I think there's a lot to be said about having a lower profile in general. And I think I've always tried to uh, adhere to that throughout my lifetime. So 29 years old, managing a billion dollars. Walk me through your 30s. What, what happened then? So the next four years, as I mentioned, were really great. And uh, I really enjoyed running the over-the-counter fund. I, I could really have done that for quite a while, I think. It was not an, uh, an area that was re- overly researched by Wall Street at that time. So when I called a company, I felt it was really value-added in my call. And uh, I felt we were able to really bring value to my shareholders within the fund just by normal research. Um, I was very disciplined. I used to have a pad of paper on my on my desk, and like my goal every month was to contact 80 companies, and it was sort of like the discipline of how to do my job properly. And everything was going great, and you know, it's, now it's 1990. Actually, there was almost one fork in the road in 1989. Interesting story that I was offered within Fidelity to transfer out of the over-the-counter fund and to manage um, the high yield, high income group, mm-hmm. which was a complete would be a real shift because it's related to owning bonds, high yield bonds. And manage the manage the large fund. We had a high income fund and manage the entire group, and it was a great offer. I didn't know what to do. I do remember having a sleepless Yom Kippur night, uh, mm-hmm. which is not what you should be doing on Yom no. Kippur. And yet I had a, it was it was that disturbing for me. I think Yom Kippur probably came out on a Saturday, you know, mm-hmm. on Shabbos that year, and I. And I spoke to my wife, and I decided that Monday, uh, I went into the chief investment officer, and I said, I just can't take this job. And, you know, if you look back in life in different directions, you know, I'm sure you're going to talk about Magellan. The fact, you know, you, you look back, and the fact I didn't take that job is what afterwards turned into my opportunity to run the Magellan Fund, which is really amazing. So tell us about the Magellan Fund. What 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 was that right. like? So. In 1990, Peter Lynch decided to retire. He was running the Magellan Fund, just to give a minute to a background. The Magellan Fund, Peter had been running for probably 10, 15 years, had the best you know, five-year, 10-year track record um, versus other funds. He was a legend in our business, you know, comparable to the Michael Jordans or you know, whoever you want to use as a sport icon. I guess today we can use Tom Brady since I lived in New England for many there years. And um, he really was in the investment business. The, he was the household name that everyone knew about. And his fund, the Magellan Fund, I think reached a billion dollars, I believe, in 1983 when I had started. And then when he decided to retire in 1990, it was $13 billion. So it had grown incredibly. Assets had come in, which was true of the entire firm. We had gotten in enormous amounts of assets through the whole bull market of the 1980s, past the crash of 87, which we could do a different discussion on. And uh, and anyway, so he decided, I believe, at that age to retire because his father had died young from a heart attack, mm-hmm. I believe, at the age of 47. 
And I think Peter decided at that point, I think he may have been 47, that he just wanted to change in his lifestyle, mm -hmm. even though he's been active with infidelity uh, since that time period. And there was a hole that opened up. Um, I believe I was the second person to be asked to run the fund. I think George Vanderheinen, who was running a fund called Destiny, a great fund manager, I believe he was asked first and he turned it down. And I was, I guess, the next guy on the uh, totem pole for whatever reason. I don't necessarily think I did, was deserved of it, um, but for whatever reasons, they did ask me to take over the fund. And what was challenging about it, there was a number of things that were challenging. First of all, I had been very used to the overcounted universe, having gone through a trans transition from a small universe to a larger one. This was a transition to the basically the entire world, every industry out there, which is challenging to get that under your belt. The second issue was the amount of money you're managing. $13 billion was by far the largest fund in the world, equity-based fund in the world, and that, and, and that had its challenges as far as running money. And third of all, and maybe to some degree uh, most disconcerting, is the public eye that I was going to be put under mm -hmm. scrutiny. There have been articles written about me in the past, and it was fine. I didn't mind doing interviews with Fidelity. Always encouraged it because it was great free marketing for the mm -hmm. firm. But this was completely different because when Peter left, it was a front page article, not just the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. It was covered by everyone, all the business magazines and the general news. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, you know, myself, you know, relatively young, and again, being an Orthodox Jew was unusual. And uh, so, and suddenly I was being thrust into the limelight. And what happened, I remember on a Monday, they called me in to offer me this position. And I I asked them, I wanted to take the rest of the day off. I went home and spoke to my wife, Devara, because it was going to affect her life, affect our children. Mm -hmm. And How old were you at this time? So I was then 33. 33, wow. Asked to run a $13 billion, billion dollar fund. fund. Wow. Right. That's right. As I mentioned before, career compression. I really went through career compression. I'm 36. I'm, I'm wondering, what am I doing wrong? <laughs> doing yeah. nothing wrong. Question is what I did wrong. You know, it's not that you're doing so nothing wrong. So 33 years old, you go home for the day. And, and I, you know, and, and we really kind of felt, I think, that for some reason, Akash Baruch had put me in this position. Mm -hmm. There's almost no other way to look at it. And again, even today as we're talking, I think back to what happened the year before that. You know, maybe on the first time I've really connected that dot together and why that happened and um anyway so we talked about it we figured this is the once in a lifetime situation you have to sort of do it and so i came into fidelity on tuesday mm -hmm. and i told my willing to do and they were going to announce it on wednesday so what they had me do was they had me go over to a media consultant that day and he sort of like a room like this and mm -hmm. He did an interview with me for five minutes. I mean, they taped it on a VCR tape. You know, if people mm -hmm. can look it up, Google what a VCR tape is. And then he played it back, and I was, you know, I looked at myself, I looked awful. And the next 50 minutes, he taught me how to do an interview. And it was an invaluable experience. It has helped me so much since that period in public speaking, interviews, whatever it may be, giving a sheer, et cetera. Those 55 minutes were so I really just it was so great to do it. So, um, what anyway. are some of the key takeaways from that that you remember? So, what I remember is first of all, you want to be able to control the message, okay. and I think that anybody in an interview wants to try to do that. Um, I was able to look at myself and see certain mannerisms that were not good. You know, I learned how to be calmer. I think you know, you're always a little bit nervous before you do something. 
just little tidbits, and I can't put my finger on it, but I know it really made a huge difference the next day because the next day they made the announcement on Wednesday. I had a bunch of interviews that day and through the rest of the week, and which continued quite a bit for the next couple of years, and um, it was just easier to handle from his experience. Were you wearing a yarmulke, a kippah, all the way through? So no. When I worked at Fidelity, I did not wear a kippah in the office. I wore it, you know, I, I had asked, post game about this question you know, halachic decisors about this and there were basically the way if you're in a work environment where it doesn't really is may not work out per se the two requirements you have is whenever you're eating you have to wear a yarmulke because you have to say a bracha you have to say a blessing on food so whenever i ate whenever we had a fam something in fidelity we had quite often we had lunch and we used to order in quite often from milk street cafe because of my kosher requirements mm-hmm. so i would always wear um, a yarmulke then in addition whenever i traveled anywhere i always wore a keeper no matter where i was and i visited companies all the time and you know in theory you can go into a building take off the keeper and then put it back on i just you know, it didn't mm-hmm. make much sense to me. So I just wore a keeper full time. And and I guess the reason why I didn't wear it um, initially was because when I interviewed, that was sort of like, you know, y- you sort of know the environment is not, mm-hmm. you know, yarmulke conducive. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think that question may be different today. Right. And I think I would probably react differently. You know, just since then, I, whenever I've been in any business environment, I've always wore a keeper. But in the 1980s, a little bit of a different world, right, right. especially in Boston. It was in New York. Mm-hmm. The world's come a long way. Thank yeah. God. So you took over the Magellan Fund at $13 billion. You grew it to $20 billion, beating the stock market by nearly 7% over the two years. And you were doing really well. So if I had to guess, for the next 30 years, you were leading the Magellan Fund and everything was super splendid. What happened? Right, so very good question. Yeah, it obviously has been asked of me before, also, and um, this is a true story. You know, it's been written about, but it's really true. I was um, shopping in Shaw's supermarket in Sharon on Erev Pesach, I believe, of 1992, and I had not been in the supermarket for quite a while, and I think I was literally shopping for romaine lettuce, and. Um, it struck me that I had just the sort of like the day to day normality of life had escaped me, especially those last two years. Working on Magellan was extremely intense. My work weeks were seventy hours plus. I didn't have a free minute because there was so much to do. And it's not just two years; it's ten years in the investment business. People don't recognize unless you're in the business the intensity of the position is incredible you know there's obviously you want to be successful but what's so unusual about the investment business is you're literally graded at four o'clock every day and you know people could work at a job and never be graded their entire life or being graded once a year when they sit down for their reviews that's not that way in the investment business i don't need someone sitting across me to give me a performance review the performance review occurs daily and i am a type a personality very intense and I was hard on myself that way, and I just needed a break. I felt that way, and you know, Devar and I spoke about it over Pesach, and we decided that this was the right decision: was you know to take a break, to go to Israel, and you know the firm tried to convince me otherwise for about a week, and they really offered me a leave of absence, etc. But I just needed a career shift, I felt, at that time. And, you know, Fidelity had opened up so many doors for me in a sense that, you know, financially, you know, we had done reasonably well over those years. And also, another key fact was that, as I mentioned before, the career compression. 
you know, I'd been there 10 years. I had, there was nothing else, quote unquote, to accomplish professionally. I'd been able to run Magellan pretty well over that period and had been successful in the funds before. And so you're right. I could continue to match money. There's nothing wrong with that. And, you know, I think it's a great field to be in. But I just wanted to rebalance myself to some degree. And, and, and the idea of leaving and, you know, going to Israel at that point was very important. And I, I've mentioned it before. It's, you know, life is not just based upon one direction. And while I was able to help with the kids still, and, and even, you know, as far as my own personal growth, I felt it was too disproportionate in the sense that I had to give so much of my time to work. And, you know, I've quoted um, the great football coach, Vince Lombardi, mm-hmm. uh, from the Green Bay Packers. And, you know, he often compared life to a tripod that you have your interrelationship with God, your interrelationship with your family, and your interrelationship with your work. And those are the three stools quite over that many people's lives evolve around. And I felt that that tripod had got disproportionately uh, pushed to one side, and I really wanted to rebalance it. So that was really the driving force. Plus, in addition to that, both Devar and myself had a real interest and love in moving to Israel. We mm. had both grown up very, I think, Zionistic. I don't mind mentioning today, happens to be Yom Yerushalayim, the mm-hmm. day of the celebration of capturing the city of Jerusalem in 1967. And that was one of our goals, was to try to go to Israel and see if we could make Aliyah and see how that would ha- work. So we decided we would go for a year and see how things would work out. And so that was really the genesis of that decision. You know, it's interesting looking back at that. You know, Devorah and I had talked over my time of fidelity on how much money would you quote unquote need to leave at a certain point. Mm-hmm. You know, so I did well fidelity, but not like the crazy amounts of money that are made today when people run hedge funds. In a mutual fund, you don't get paid like that. And the truth is, most of the compensation I made over the years was being a shareholder, either real or phantom stock I had a fidelity, was not mm-hmm. based on salary as much. Mm-hmm. So, but again, it worked out well. I had no complaints, obviously. And it was enough that I was able to make a move to Israel. And with the with the mindset within Israel that I, you know, one of the goals I had was to be able to learn part-time and I would continue working part-time, really managing my own money, mm-hmm. uh, which I've really, that more or less, that has um, been the way my life has been the last 30 years. I would say most people would not, at that point in their 30s, didn't even hit their mid-30s, decide to move on and and take a sabbatical for an extended period of time in Israel. Do you recognize that that is not the norm in that most people would continue climbing the corporate ladder if it was too stressful or if you're a type A personality, figure out how to balance it without giving up that opportunity? Are you cognizant of that? So it's hard to when you're on a war, when we're when when you're going through that. Again, if you're going through the 30-year progression through corporate America, mm-hmm. I could see that. It's a slower pace. The investment world is not that pace at all. It was, and, and especially as we were going through the 80s and at the firm I was at, it was everything was compressed. And um, I didn't view it that way at all. In other words, I was looking really for the microcosm of my own glasses mm-hmm. and not from other people's perspective. A different personality type could stay in that environment for many, many years, would not be as intense, be able to match money, etc. That's just not my makeup, I guess. Mm-hmm. Did you feel yourself aging through the process or it was just internal? It's I, I don't know if the word is aging, but 
I was a little bit overweight. I've never been really overweight, but I was a little bit overweight. I did feel stressful mm -hmm. in the sense that, you know, I used to have on my desk those balls that you kind of, mm -hmm. you know, I, I busted, I busted one. Busted a few stress That's not balls. a good, yeah, that's not yeah, a good sign. Right. I'm not that strong. You right. see, it's not like I have strong arms. Um, there, you just feel stress and, um, that was a factor, I think, right. involved with it. But again, it's not, there wasn't one factor. It was really, there was many things that were going on in my mind related to that. And I, I think there was, again, the, the goal of going to Israel, the goal of spending more time doing Jewish learning, which I really never had an opportunity to do, those were really important. And spending time with the family in, in not as stressed you know, situation. All those things were important factors. It was not one variable. It was many variables that went into the decision. It wasn't a rash decision. The decision to, to at that day was, quote, unquote, I decided I want to leave. But that was building up, I would say. You know, um, I would, <laughs> I'll put it in different terms. There were probably once or twice a year, the five prior years, I had thought about leaving. Mm -hmm. And that may have been to another firm, et cetera. But that was because of all those stresses involved. You see them as you're going through them. Um, yet, you know, you go into the office the next day. You think about it, but you don't act. But this was one time, I guess, because I really felt like I had sort of accomplished what I wanted to. That gave me an opportunity to do other things. And now, a word from a sponsor. So, what is a mortgage broker? Well, when you buy a house, you don't necessarily have the funds needed, right? If it's a $500,000 house, a million-dollar home, people don't have the liquidity, a.k.a. cash, mm -hmm. to fund that. And you need a bank. You need a broker. You need someone to help you facilitate the loan. And that can be pretty scary. If you get someone who's not good at their job, it probably is going to cost you a lot of money. Well, I would imagine a lot of people are good at their job, and some are Why are you okay? being so like, PC about it? I'm sure there's a lot of people no, who are bad, because at, you, bad at it. You need someone to tell you who's good. Mm. That's what I mean. You, 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 don't, you can't identify who's good and who might not be so good, but you'll only find out after the fact. That's why, when approved funding, we've heard so many good things about them, they teamed up with us and we said, sold approvedfunding.com slash mortgages. Email them. Shmuel Shiawitz is there to help. Yaakov, you're in the market for a home? I am. Who will you be using? Shmuel. Approved funding. It's, you know what You know what I love about Shmuel? Yes. Is the fact that I, it happens to be, you know, we talked about this podcast, but just Dom, we just schmooze and he's so helpful. And and I, I find it weird to use the, this word that he's creative in the space that he's in. Like yes. when I think of creativity, I think of like art and like paintings, but when it comes to financing, you know, your home, there's a lot of very smart ways of doing it. And he he lives and breathes this stuff. It's not something that he gets home and, you know, he just checks out and check them out on social media. They have really cool posts. He creates TikTok yeah. type reels. Yes, so fun. Um, he's fun. He gets it. And he, like you said, he's creative. He's not just going to give you a piece of paper, sign here. He'll try to understand your situation. And I think you'll be much better off for it. And not just home buying. It's, if it's anything like finance related, you need a good guy, smart yes. guy. Yeah. He's your guy. And he'll waive all the bank fees if you mention kosher money. That so, is true, by the way. Win, so, win, win. So where people find them? You're not listening? You said it? Like three times. I was thinking of like how creative he is. So. Oh, okay. Approvefunding.com slash mortgages. Tell them your friends at Kosher Money sent you. Without further ado, back to this week's episode. You mentioned your wife, Devora quite a few times during this episode. It sounds like you communicated off early and often about 
your status, your state in the company, your combined interests? How important was that or your wife in the decision making? I think it's extraordinarily important. You know, a, a marriage is, is a true partnership and and you don't make arbitrary decisions without your spouse being integrally involved with them. And we don't give enough credit. I think people who are working full time, we do give credit, but again, quite often your spouse is the one who's really shouldering the you know the children at home, all the responsibilities on a week to week basis, um, and that's why I think it is very relevant to have them involved because they they do have to make quote unquote sacrifices. My wife went back for an MBA um, while I was working at Fidelity. She went back for an MBA at Babson College, which she got at night. Very proud of her, and she graduated with honors. And um, but she really sacrificed her career uh, for what I was doing. Um, and then even subsequent, we went to Israel, et cetera. And you have to, you know, communications in a marriage is absolutely critical. You know, everyone, you speak, and this is not my area of expertise, quote unquote. I mean, thank God I'm married for 43 years. So, you know, that's worked out pretty well, I'd say. But you, I think communications is so critical between a couple that you each are on the same page. And, and I think she was always involved with these types of decisions. Tell me about the happiness you experienced. You're, you're a few months into your Jerusalem sabbatical. You're sitting there. You're learning the Talmud, learning Gemara. And you look out the window. And did you feel a certain sense of, I made the right decision? Did you, did you have any regret? What, what, what was that like? Great, great question. So on the personal pr- perspective I, I can't say enough about that decision. I look back in my own life, it was probably, it's among the top three or four most important decisions I made on a personal basis in my life. Uh, it changed me um, from the perspective that Torah took a real central part of my life going forward. And it's been since that day. Um, and as you say, you know, I used to spend, I used to go to the old city every morning for seven years. I would go to the old city, I went to Dafyomi in the old city, and then I would sit in the base Medrash of Esha Torah, sort of a coincidental story. I had been, um, I'd given a class really on strategic planning at Esha the summer of 92 when we moved to Israel, um, spoke to Rabbi for a number of hours, and they asked me, why don't you come sit in the base Medrash? So I just ended up doing that. It was a great place to learn in the morning. So I would be in the base Medrash from 9, 9.30 till about 12, 12.30 every morning. And, um, you know, you're overlooking, you know, literally the Kotel Harabait. It's incredible, the Temple Mount. And it was a fantastic experience. And plus the fact I was able to spend part of my day learning and then part of my day working, which I still, I love the investment business. It's not Mm -hmm. as if, I didn't leave the business because I hated the investment business. I left the business for other reasons. I think it's a great field for people to go into, very challenging. It's changed a lot. But from the time period I worked, I loved it. And I used to continue to do that. That's what I did in the afternoon. I'd come home. I'd be home at a normal time with the kids, and I wouldn't have night things to worry about. It was a great. It was really wonderful. So, were there any? Was there any sense of regret at any point in the beginning, middle, end stages of this decision? It was. I can honestly say, looking back, there's never been a regret about the decision to mm. leave Fidelity mm. ever. I mean, and again, I only have great things to say about the company. It was a fantastic experience. I worked with an incredible group of people in the 1980s. I can't say enough about that or about the organization and the way I was treated. So nothing, you know, from that end, only only positive feelings. But yet on a personal basis, 
I felt it. I felt and feel it was such a correct decision. And it, and it's you know it's interesting because, you know, over the last thirty years, you evolve as a person also, and. I feel every day I wake up, I'm like the luckiest guy in the world. I get up very early and I spend my morning learning and I just, I can't believe it. I I really mean that. I cannot believe it. What time are you waking up these days? Um, I get, not today because it was Sunday. I went to bed at one in the morning, but on a typical day, I get up, let's say on average about 4.45 plus or minus. And, and, um, I mean, I have, I have a great schedule because, you know, I learn from then till 8 o'clock. I dive in at 8. I have a chavrus afterwards with Lenny Feiner. And, you know, basically from early in the morning till 9.30, 10, let's call it, I'm involved with Torah. And, you know, I spend a couple hours in going through emails and investing. There's things going on because I still manage my own monies. I have it out with a lot of different people and story in of itself. But in the middle of the day, I learned Chavrusa with my grandchildren in Israel. In fact, I learned 5.30 in the morning with one of my grandchildren in Israel, who's in school at that time. He has Seder. And the other beautiful thing is that in, in, in the evening, also, I spend a lot of time with grandchildren on FaceTime and even children learning. So I have a wonderful time of interacting with really with my grandchildren on a unique way, which I would encourage everyone to do. Big learner of Mishnahis with all my with my grandsons, and um, I have eleven of those, by the way, um, consecutively before we had three granddaughters. Wow. So, um, and they're just wonderful. And again, having more time to spend with them in that sort of interaction is great. You know, it's interesting because we live all over the world, but I have a real kesher, a real connection with them, and the learning has a lot to do with that. So people have probably come up to you over the years looking for advice. Um, One question that I would imagine I want to ask you is that, and I'm not in that place, but there are people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s that have done very well financially. What message would you give them to not necessarily make the jump that you made and, and, and ship out to Israel, but should they be seriously considering a recalibration of their tripod, as you called it, if they have done very well uh, financially and they have the breathing room and the ability to do so? That's a it's a really good question, and I don't think I've ever been asked that question. Uh, that I think it's a very important thing for everyone to consider. I you know you, I can't extrapolate my personal feelings and the desire that I had for growth in certain areas. Uh, onto other people. Um, many of those people in the 20s, 30s, 40s may already be spending quite a bit of time and may have spent many years in yeshiva. Um, and I respect that completely if they really want to be immersed, you know, and try to to grow in their, you know, financial success, etc. But I do think you have to always recalibrate and see where the tripod is. Um, you can't, again, life is short and we all recognize that. And you don't want to give up all these years just completely focused just on business, especially if you've made it, quote-unquote, financially. Now, everyone may have different definitions of what that is. Um, But I think it is something you have to always be considering. And at a minimum, you should always try to be growing the part of your life that's devoted to your family and devoted to Torah. It should always be a growing part, and especially if you have more wealth. You should try to do as much as you can to grow the other parts of the tripod for your own personal self and for your interaction with your family. 
You gave a class I saw on YouTube. I was watching a video to uh, boys in Jerusalem at a yeshiva there, and you were talking about this concept of, I believe, wasting time. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? Sure. That is definitely one of my uh, hot buttons, as I would say. And I, even going back to what you just discussed on the prior question, sometimes it's just better time management for you to get more out of the day, and you don't have to necessarily even give up time at work to be able to maximize your potential. So we all, we've all been, I think, to some degree, the what's happened with the internet, smartphones, et cetera, it's drawn us, it used to be television, so I don't know if it's any different, but we sort of end up wasting, quote unquote, a lot of time. And we're all human and we do the best we can. You know, none of us are Avchayim Kanievsky, as that's all. Um, what we, but however, the amount of time we waste, you know, wasting time is like the worst thing you could possibly do in your life because God gave you a certain amount of time in this world to maximize your potential in creating change and doing good things, etc. When you quote-unquote waste time, you can never get that back. It is a lost asset that you had. So when I was speaking to them, I've, and it's a message they've gotten different yeshivas, different places over the years, is that I think most wasted time is later at night. And what do I mean by that? I think if most people look at themselves, their efficiency levels go down in the evening. And you start, you know, surfing the net, wasting your time in front of television, whatever you're doing, it tends to be less productive. And I'm a huge fan of getting up early. The earlier you get up, the less you'll have. First of all, the fresher your mind will be and the lesser the distractions. And those are the two key factors. At night, you get phone calls, this and that, the emails, etc. It's just it's just really bad in that sense. And uh, what I tell these younger students is if you would go to sleep just a half hour earlier, I mean, I could probably do a lot more than that, but at least a half hour earlier and get up a half hour earlier in the morning, you're going to change your lives. You have 180 hours more a, a year to learn. And that I don't care what you're doing in life. You could spend those 180 hours learning. And you could change yourself completely. No matter what you like to learn, that can change you as a person. And I've had people come over to me and in subsequent years and tell me that that message resonated, made a difference in their life. And that's why I emphasize it. Yeah. Like you mentioned with the smartphone, you could be on Instagram or even YouTube and it's... 10.30 at night and you blink and it's 1.15 in the morning. Right, which is hard. Now, I, I am not a social media guy. Um, we don't have to get into a long discussion. But I'm not, I, I'm, I happen to have groups um, that are, I send out business articles. Articles, I have a separate group related to jobs. Mm-hmm. This goes back to 2008. And have a Torah group mm-hmm. that I send out things to. And But those are one way. And I'm not interested in anyone's dialogue mm-hmm. back to me. It's the right. one way. If you don't want to be on it, you're off the list. And it's really done, you know, for people love reading the business stuff. The Torah stuff speaks for itself. And the jobs list has helped many, many people awesome. get jobs over the years. Been very fortunate. And I've always said, I've not, I've tried. We have not made one shidduch for marriage in my life. But thank God in jobs, I've had success over the years. And um, so, but again, it's like, I don't want to waste time on social media. I have right. zero interest in doing that because it's just not productive in your life. So, you know, I don't watch YouTube unless I'm watching a short clip that you put up or something. But really, it's, I, I don't have the time to watch a, a movie and things like that. It's just right. very hard. I will tell you, by yeah. the way, just sorry, I'm human. So recently I did watch... Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> it sounds crazy, but I did watch a one-hour um, documentary that was recently done. It was presented by Toro College about the life of Menachem Begin with interviewing people today. It was tremendous. I really enjoyed we'll it. We'll put it in the show notes for people to click on and watch. That one is really, it yeah. really is. It was unbelievable, very emotional, and really, really, uh, really connected with them. So there, there certainly is good educational and informative content. You have to be really, really... Um, intentional on how you surf if you do want to allocate a certain amount of time but you're saying when it hit the clock hits a certain you take that phone bring it out of the room go to sleep go to sleep very very much so and you know as I've gotten a little bit older I'm trying to sleep six hours a night from lesser amounts in the past mm-hmm. and I really am making a real effort at it, it makes a difference and uh, I find my, again myself just being fresher so if I'm going to get I have to get to sleep by 10.30 quarter to 11 at night that's usually you know that's my hard stop I try we'll be right back to this conversation with Ellie and Morris Smith but first Ellie wants to tell you a message Kolel Chabad Yaakov I'm really excited because more and more people are donating mm. and they reached out to me and they said Ellie when you come to Israel we want to give you a tour of the facility. Is that a kosher money episode or some? I think it could be. I think it could be. Um, like seeing how uh, organization gives back to those in need and like the process. It's tremendous. There are so many people in Israel that need help. And this is what this organization has been doing for 225 years. It's always My- good knowing that organization like uh, Living Lechaim, we're an organization at this point, but uh, we're a year old. I mean, I think not we're tr- even. You're like not, 10 months. I know, literally. I looked today. I yeah. think we're trustworthy. I think people see what we're doing. We're very public about it. But with them, over 200 years of just servicing those in need, it's, yeah. it's crazy. It's yeah. incredible. So, I, I've been saying this now. You can get a free pushka from them, which I think is a really cool way. Uh, put it by your your Friday night candles. Did you Did you ask them for a free pushka yourself? No, no, they'll give it on the website. I'm saying, go, did you get one yourself? Oh, I did not because I just donate on my credit card. You can do recurring donations. Ooh, and like people that. think recurring donations, that's like $4,000 a year. No, you can do $5 a week. Right. You know, you can, if you're giving a tenth of your um, money as it comes in to a charity, I'm not telling you to give all 10% to Kol Chabad. But I'm, t- I'm saying that. Give all of it to Kol Chabad. But yeah, you could give something. You know, I, I think maybe you could do a whole episode on this is that like people have this mindset of like, if I'm not giving $500 to this organization, then I'm not helping them. Every and dollar it's, counts. It's, it's crazy. Like you literally, if you're giving a dollar, they could use that dollar to yeah. give it to someone who actually needs it. And they have so many volunteers. So their staff salary is practically... I love, I love organizations like that. Like the, the people in the community are giving back to yeah. help so all that money could actually go to those in need. And you don't get volunteers if it's not real. Volunteers will, will yeah, bounce they, they, after they, the they first. Yeah, they sense, yeah. but they have so many volunteers. So kolchabad.org, check them out. I think we even have like our own link. We'll put it in the show notes. Uh, sure. click, click there. Um, they do so many cool things. So check out their website. Tell them Kosher Money sent you. And uh, should we go back to this week's episode? Yeah, okay. Let's do it. I was talking with a friend of mine, Shimmy Canner. He, his father gives a share a class in Farakawi, which he says that you frequent. And he was talking about Art Scroll, the leading Judaica publication, and how you submit corrections to them over the years. And I said, that's so funny, because in the past few months, when I've been doing Dafyomi or, or learning, and I spot a grammatical error or some sort of um, item that needs correcting, I'll email them. And I suggested to the Zlatowicz family that they 
have some auto reply that comes back that we've received your replies. But tell us, you've ha- how many times in your life have you submitted a correction? I, to I don't submit them as often as Rabbi Catter does. Rabbi uh, Catter submits them often. I was always his conduit. Still uh-huh. am. Whenever he sends me something, I will uh, send it to them always. And they've always very, by the way, very receptive. I yeah. spoke. You know, they've been great. You know, I just since you mentioned Art Scroll, I don't mind talking yeah, about ahead. that for one minute. I think Rabbi Zlotowicz at all was. What he did for for the Jewish people, you cannot measure. Uh, you look about, you look back at heroes, you know, mm-hmm. over my lifetime. He is ranking literally on the top of the list, you know, in the top five, quote unquote. He changed my life. You know what art scroll? It's very interesting. You know, right now we're doing Masechi Yavamos in in, in Dafyomi, so. I already opened volume three uh, yesterday. I was learning, and volume three, which happens to be my, this is my fourth cycle of Dafyomi. I'm doing wow. a seam now at the end of Yavamas. I started in Yavamas in 1992, shortly after I arrived in Israel. It happened to have been the last volume that the Art Scroll English published mm. in their seam in 2005. And they have a commemoration on the bottom of the Gemara, which is beautiful. And I was thinking yesterday literally about Rabbi Zlotowitz and again and the impact it made on my life. When I went to Israel and you know started to benefit from arts, changed my learning of Gemara. Like my exposure to Talmud basically through high school and I'd been in Israel for one year afterwards was, you know, not great. From Yeshiva Flappish, they were not known for their Talmudic studies, I mm-hmm. would say. And I had one year in Israel, which was good. And then I learned, when I was up in Sharon, I had a Chavruta, we used to learn together on on Sunday morning, 6.30 in the morning, and then we started to do on Shabbos. And we went through Masechet Sanhedrin and a couple other of the tractates. But the first time I really got into learning, as far as Gemara goes, I always liked halach and stuff, but Gemara was when I went to Israel in 1992. I started doing Daf Yomi with a very close friend of mine now. His name is Ephraim Schreibman, who I still listen to his podcast of the Daf. And again, the Daf changed my life also in another, just an incredible way. And I've been doing it now for 30 years. By the way, just since we mentioned podcasts and the Daf, I am an extensive user of smartphones for classes, for Jewish classes, for mm-hmm. things like that. It's unbelievable. What apps do you use? So uh, I'll put on my OU hat since I am very involved with the OU. All Daf, all Mishnah, all Parsha are phenomenal. Wonderful. They are yeah. incredible, incredible apps. Hopefully we'll have more in the future. And off, and again, just general podcasts. I listen to Rabbi Leewood's podcast almost, on almost every topic. And he's tremendous. Mm-hmm. And they're literally, it's limitless. There are, and the quality is incredible. Like when I'm doing the DAF now, it is unbelievable. What I, you know, I'm a 1.5 at a minimum guy, mm-hmm. and I cannot take 1.0. It's like it's like torture. It's slow, right? Oh, it's horrible. And um, but 1.5 minimum, sometimes faster, and you get to hear tremendous, you know, Magidish years, like you know, Rasuli Bornstein, and sure. I just it just doesn't end. It's sure. incredible. So without art school, it would have been much more difficult to make your transition into. I, yes, it would have been more difficult, and I don't think I would have developed the same love. Wow, it was. The you know I started with art you know Sencino was great but it wasn't it's Sencino it didn't have much color beyond the difficult English that they had um, not to dismiss Sencino however but Art Scroll took it to a such di- and within the development of the Art Scroll Gemara you see the difference in the quality from the earliest Masechas I think they took out like let's say Megillah and Makos, you know, we could tell them Tanya's was an early Masechet. And you look at Yuvamos Volume 3, it's just light years ahead of where it was originally. Wow. Um, again, through the, through the notes primarily, 
And um, I just, it's incredible the benefit you get. And again, Art Scroll's impact is not just the Gemara. The impact on the sitter is incredible what it did for everybody mm-hmm. in Kal Yisrael. You know, and the famous story of Shmuel Kamenetsky uses an Art Scroll sitter for Machzorim on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. You know, to translate words that, mm-hmm. you know, he found difficult. I'm sure in the Avodah, there's plenty of things that are difficult. Mm-hmm. And we all benefit from that, and the Mishnayas, et cetera, and they continue. It's interesting, like, on the on the commentaries on the Torah, like the Ramban and the Orchan, their translations are phenomenal with the notes. It's just tremendous. And some of their Hebrew works. I This year, I've been going through Mayam Beit Shoeva, which is Rav Schwab's work, going through the whole thing, Avachavrusa, and it's fantastic. Again, I just can't say enough about what Arts Girl has done. Yeah, we've got to take advantage of that. So people, I'm sure, given your, your background, your history, your experience, people come over to you and ask you for money-related advice. It yeah. could be job-related, um, salary, asking for a raise, um, going into a new industry. What's the what's the general theme of your advice to people that are looking to excel in their career? We did an episode a couple of episodes ago about asking for raises and, and talking to your boss, and it was very well-received. Mm-hmm. So you know, based on where you are and the things you've seen, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Sure. A couple of comments, maybe. First of all, I'm, I'm a believer in education as far as getting prepared to go to the outside world. And again, I, it is a function of my background, so that I do have a prejudice for that. But being prepared through BAs, MBAs, I thought that was very, very helpful. I really learned tools of the trade that way. And I do believe it's important if you're going to be, obviously, if you're in the medical field, you're a lawyer, you need those back. And I think even if you plan on going on business in the future, to have a trade in one of those areas in accounting, I've, I've told many people over the years, go into account. You don't have to be an accountant if you don't want your entire life, but you're going to get such foundational skills that you get out of that and tax, etc. So I really do believe you want to invest in education education from the perspective of developing skill sets that before you go into the workforce the second important message which is a message i think has been lost to some degree in this generation is having appreciation for your employer that you know we have nothing ever coming to us and when you get hired there should be a high level of appreciation for the company that's doing that and they're investing in you and I think you have to really put out, you know, frankly, Jewish law looks at it that way. We're very, very, our, our approach to what you have to do for your employer within Jewish law is very um, daunting as far as the commitment you have to have. And I think that is very, very true. And I don't think we necessarily fully appreciate that, that when we have an employer, he's you know investing in you, he's paying you well, and you have to produce for him. And when you're working on the job, you have to do what your responsibilities are. Now, sometimes you can do responsibilities much quicker than the time they demand. So I can understand how there's a little bit of a give and take on that area. But you cannot shortchange your employer. Um, so those would be two very important principles. As far as raises, what you mentioned, I think a lot of that is, you know, it's hard to know wh- if and when what to do. You sometimes, sometimes the best way to know about raises to, is to see what your value is out there mm-hmm. in case you would be moving to another job. That obviously is a much better way of truly understanding your value to a company. And that would be probably my first suggestion to people. 
it says here in this article that I was reading online that Smith says he keeps his money very concentrated in 10 to 15 stocks. First of all, Smith is not a classic Jewish name. You sure your name's not Friedman? It was Schmidt. Oh, Schmidt. <laughs> yes, uh, but you're right. It was not Smith in Europe. <laughs> My father was not a Smith. Got it. Smith says he keeps his money very concentrated in 10 to 15 stocks. You're quoted as saying, I try to do as good a job as possible. I call my companies, keep up on research, and enjoy what I'm doing. So obviously nothing we share here is is financial advice, and, right. and no one should, should act upon it, etc. But people are always looking to say, hey, what's what's catching people's eyes who are doing the research? Mm-hmm. And what, what would you say to them? Good. So first of all, that article was probably written a number of years ago because today I probably have less stocks than that. Wow. I have, you know, it's again, that's a different discussion, but how my own investing has evolved over the years. We may want to uh, talk about that a little bit sure. also. But um, as far as specifically with stocks, for most people, unless you have the time to really look and research companies individually and understand markets really well. I am a huge fan that the average individual should put money in index funds. And I've been saying this, even go back to days I was working at Fidelity. It's almost impossible for you to be able to find that specific company, that specific industry. It's And, you know, sometimes some people have a good knack at it, et cetera. But for the average person who's working in a different field, I would not, I would look as the investing process being some way to grow your money. The best way to try to do that is in a diversified portfolio where you don't get blown out of the water by one company, one situation, etc. Over long time periods, the stock market tends to do reasonably well. It may be unexciting, but the best idea is just put in money on a consistent basis into an S&P Standard Poor's 500 fund. It could also have some money in a, you know, it could be in a growth area or a more value area. It could be over the counter. But generally, I think, avoid the risks and just put it in at least a part of your portfolio that you want to have exposed to stocks, have it in an unexciting, but you know, what will I think deliver for you fine returns over long term times, which is a standard and poor 500 fund. So we're here now in May, June, 2022. And you, you look at the market now and it's not doing as well. I took a peek into my small 401k and it's dropped, you know, ten, twenty thousand dollars and it's not because I'm not diversified. And you've lived it right through the uh Black Monday, October nineteen eighty seven. What advice or insights would you give to people that are nervous, right? You know, they're always concerned that okay, it's rebounded in the past, but maybe this is the one. This is where we're not coming back from this. So the first piece of advice is never have more money in the stock market than you can afford to lose. And that is like a golden rule. Um, You want to be able to sleep at night. If you feel like you're not sleeping at night, it means you'd have too much money in the market. The second comment I would make is don't be focused so much on three-month returns or four-month returns. Be focused on how have you done the last five years, 10 years, 20 years. And that perspective, I think, helps quite a bit. So again, markets are going to go up and down. If we have a recession, the market's going to go down more than that. But it hasn't been a good bet over the last 50, 60, 80 years, 70 years to bet against America, bet against the world. You know, we used to have... 
make comments that people have called 11 of the last two recessions and things like that. You know, again, I'm not saying I'm not making predictions about the future. Maybe it is the end of the world, but I don't think it's a great idea to bet on the end of the world. And we're going to have bigger problems if we're having the end of the world. It's not going to be your stock portfolio to be concerned about. Let's talk about um, educating children with money. You mentioned your close connection with your children and your grandchildren. How do you talk to them about money at a, at a young age? And mm-hmm. as they go through their teen years into their 20s, what should they be knowing about money that isn't necessarily taught in schools and yeshiva? Sure. So a couple, a couple of messages. First of all, something you touched on earlier. I think when you have a cognizance of the value of money from the perspective of not just spending it freely for no reason, there is a certain DNA that gets passed down. I think my children, all of them, um, have some of that in them just from having been in the household. Again, we have, we live, thank God, a beautiful life. But there's also a cognizance and understanding of not to go into deficit spending. And that is, you know, I, had no, I have no debt. I have no interest in having debt. And, you know, it's one thing to have a mortgage on a house. But, like, frankly, the first time I made a decent amount of money, I paid off my mortgage. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course you could get a mortgage. But it, I just don't want to have that on my head. I have enough investments that are levered that I don't need to have that. So... I think that's one. That's message A is never spend more than you have. And again, when you get your first credit card, understand what that is. It's important to give kids responsibility. To, you know, in insurance, I, I took quite a few courses in insurance in business school. You know, coinsurance is a very good idea. Why? Because when it has to come out of your pocket, also when you're paying for a medical bill or something, you think twice maybe about do I want to spend the sixty dollars to see this doctor? It's so it's no different if if you have your child paying a portion of something, it could be insurance on a car, whatever you decide that to be, they will be more sensitive to that. I think giving them unlimited spending capabilities is not a great idea. So that would be, and it's also, by the way, if possible, it's not a bad idea if your kids get a chance to make some money doing something along the way. We're all believers in chesed, yours truly being, there's no argument about chesed, but it's also not a bad thing if they do something even a couple weeks a year and get paid something for Mm -hmm. it. The value of making some money gives them an appreciation of money let's talk charity i know that's a big part of your life um how do you look at charity and how should people you know think about charity as more of not something that they have to do but it couldn't potentially even enhance their life it's unbelievable you know it's a question of how to view charity you know god blesses us in this world with you know incredible amounts you know it just with everything, okay? One of the things he blesses us with, money. We have no right to that money. We didn't earn any, you know, any different than my parents or grandparents, et cetera, you know. And we are stewards. That's all we are. We're stewards. And I think it's a very important, critical message that we know within Judaism, I think within the world, that, you know, we were given a certain amount of money, and then you have to take that money, and you have to help other people with that money. You were blessed. They may have not been blessed. You know better than they are. So you really got to go ahead and do that. So I think that's like part of our all of our DNA. And in general, giving is so much better than taking. And I think anyone who is able to help in the area of charity feels so much better. And that's that's a life lesson. It's not just charity. In life, when you're a, when you're a giver, 
and not a taker, you're going to be a happier person. Mm. That is, you know, that's gratitude. And 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 uh, so I think it's a fantastic thing to be able to do. Now, what you want to do on a more specific basis when it comes to charity is you want to direct that charity to where you feel the needs are most within a community. You have to look at your community, the, the, the local Jewish community, and the broader community. I've always been a huge uh, a person who believes you have to support your synagogue. You have to support your day school. I mean, they, they are educating your children. It's so critical to be behind that. And then in general, if you have certain values, if you value Torah learning throughout the world, you should be supporting Torah learning. If you value certain types of chesed that's being done, you should value that with how you express that, whether that's medical reference services. There could be so many different areas that you can give your tzedakah to. And in addition to that, if you have skill sets in certain areas, you should give that also. It's not just the money. It's skill sets that all of us have developed over the years that organizations need. You know, I've been very fortunate. The last six years, um, I've been involved with the, with the Orthodox Union and with the OU. And I have to thank Moish Bain, uh, the current president, for that because he encouraged me, asked me to join the board, and gave me certain responsibilities. And I have been such a beneficiary of being able to work within one of the organizations. I'm the commission head of Jewish Leadership Initiative on campus. We have couples all over the world doing really being the Rabbi Rebbitson on campuses for college. Uh, primarily, we're targeting the day school uh, individuals who go to campus. And then I'm also treasurer of the Orthodox Union on the executive board. And the responsibility that we have within Clyde where we take very, very seriously when we allocate funds, when we invest in funds. One of the things that Moish had really pushed over the last couple of years has been the Torah Initiative. And that's what all DAF came out, Torah in the City. They've been phenomenal. And, it's ch- and the Women's Learning Initiative have changed people's lives. So you can really enhance people's lives. It's been wonderful. Yeah. You, you set out to be the giver and you were receiving. Oh, with adequate, yeah. And again, as you said, specifically when you talk about the apps, it's been unbelievable. Right, wow. so. Yeah. Um, while I have you here, there are just different topics that are flooding into my head, and I wanted to get your opinion on wills and estates. And it's not something that we talk about a lot in the Jewish community, but it's critical, right? You have people, as they get older, they want to ensure that there aren't feuds with their money and they want things to be clear and concise. Do you have a will yourself? Yes. And- uh, great question again. Um, I'll, first of all, a will is a slam dunk. When you get married, you know, you have your first child, you better have a will mm-hmm. in place. You have to have a will in place because, God forbid, something happens to the couple. Where is your child going? Let's say you have no money. You have mm-hmm. to take care of where your children will ultimately be, will be raised. You, God forbid, that should happen. So a will is a no-brainer, you know. You have to get a halachic will. That is not difficult to do. You know, you go to any, a lot of lawyers who are really equipped who know what that is and not difficult. Relating to estate planning, which is really what you're discussing, I think it's a very, very important issue, and it's an issue I spent a lot of time on in 2020. There was a lot of talk here in this country about changing the estate tax rules, and that was the thrust for me to say, let me get my financial house in order and organize it. So, and a number of my peers, I think, did the same thing. And you know, I, we engaged the services, all of us, of different attorneys. I had a very, an excellent attorney, Avi Kestenbaum, who uh, worked with me to really get my estate set up. 
you know, God willing, it should grow over time, but where I can avoid, hopefully, tremendous amount of federal taxes, and you'll be able to help your children, which you always want to do anyway, but help them in the future and your grandchildren as best as you can. We have no idea what's going to be in the future, but at least... Looking at the world today, I feel that the children hopefully will be set up as best as possible. It's something you should, nobody likes to do it. No one likes to think about the finality of their life, but it's it's irresponsible not to. And you have to just say, okay, I have to do this. So it's like taxes. You have to pay your taxes. You have to do your taxes every year. You should do your estate tax planning. So we've been here for well over an hour. And I mean, we discussed things prior to the episode and during the recording, what parting message do you have, you know, when they think back to the Morris Smith episode? Um, I've seen your name in the emails, the groups. By the way, how do people sign up for the... Just email morris.smith at gmail.com. I'll put you on the jobs group or whatever. Whatever yeah, you want. that's awesome. So so what, what do you want to leave them with to chew on or help them sleep better at night, keep them up at night? Whatever it is you want to leave them with, what, what would that message be? The message would be, looking back at life, quote-unquote, would be a message of, of gratitude to, really, to God, Hakosh Baruch We live in incredible, incredible times. Um, everyone talks about how life has, seems to be going at a faster and faster pace. But when you pull yourself back, we have been blessed in our lifetime with the most incredible gifts. We have a state of Israel. We have a Jewish people where we're going to be a majority of Jewish people are going to be living in Israel. I think everyone should be considering that factor. We live in a country with all of our problems. Still, everybody would rather live, move to America than almost any other country in the world. They're blessed to be in with stable homes, good families. People should appreciate how much they have been given in their life by God and how they have the opportunities to do so much good in this world. And that would be, and that's what gets, you know, I, some, again, you reframe things over life. I, I have a tremendous appreciation now looking back. When you're going through the process, you don't see a lot of this. But as you get a little bit older, you start to really appreciate the gifts that, you know, Hashem, that God gave you along the way. And if you wake up every single day with that feeling of moda'ani, of thanking the Lord, the good Lord for everything he's given you, it just gives you so much more of a positive spin on life. And happy people beget happiness around them and usually brings good momentum in life. So that would probably be the message. Love that. Morris Smith, Morris Schmidt, we should say. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us here in the studio. Thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode on the Living L'Chaim Network. Kosher Money is not just Ellie Langer. It's produced by my brother Yaakov Langer. We have friends over at the OU with Living Smarter Jewish, Zevi Wolman, Simon Taylor, Rabbi Hauer. A lot of people give input to us and we cannot express just how appreciative we are to them and to you. So if this is your first episode or your 20-something episode, we appreciate your subscriptions, your likes, your comments. We even like critical feedback. I think, Yaakov, would you say some of our episodes have been guided by critical feedback? And we appreciate it. So if you have yet to like us on YouTube, subscribe, give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, please do that. It helps us in the rankings. And we reach more people. So I think right now on YouTube, we're over 80,000 subscribers. If you have not checked out Living L'Chaim's other podcasts on 
YouTube and streaming pretty much everywhere, please do so. There's a podcast on mental health. Uh, Charlene Aminoff has a amazing podcast geared for women. Um, he has a podcast, my brother, on Jewish music. I've been telling him all these different ideas. He's like, whoa, 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 I'm just one person. I know he's just one person, but offline I'm about to tell him two additional ideas I had sitting in traffic today, and I think it would be amazing. So I, I probably left off. Uh, did I miss any of the... Uh, oh, Inspiration for the Nation, the newest one. I like that. I, you know what I like about Inspiration for the Nation is that you're traveling to these guests that may not be able to make it out to Long Island, which I think is kind of cool. And then a different environment is sometimes interesting. You get them in their own turf and, and you know, with the events, I think we're going to be doing more events. I think Kosher Money could be doing events, we're working on some cool guests. If you have suggestions for us, please send them our, uh, our way. Um, yeah, on the website, livinglechaim.com. We also uh, want to thank our sponsors, Approved Funding and Kol Chabad. Please support our sponsors. Um, one's a nonprofit, one's a for-profit, but they both get it. They both understand our mission here, and we have very similar goals. And uh, we appreciate them joining us for the ride. So until next week, next episode, next year, whenever the next one is, I bid you farewell. Living L'chaim.